When Irish volunteers rose up against British rule in the 1916 Rising, they could never have imagined the impact their legacy would have on another British colony thousands of miles away from the streets of Dublin. And not just another colony, but Britain's largest and most valuable one. This colony was India. And today, as we commemorate the centenary of the Rising, an Indian woman based in Galway tells us the story of this intriguing, revolutionary connection. My name is Pranjali Bhave. I'm from India and I have been living in Ireland for the last 10 years. I had no connection with Ireland until I met my Irish husband 13 years ago. Where's Scooby? Who wants to record? I barely even knew where Ireland was on the world map. And so when it became apparent that I would be moving to this strange country, it was the usual expected mix of feelings my family went through. Uncertainty, worry, hope. What my family was sure of, though, was an angry reaction from my grandfather, who is an argumentative, extreme Hindu nationalist. But his reaction surprised, rather shocked us all. When he heard the name of Ireland, he just gave this big, wide, unforgettable smile. I had never seen him so delighted with any of my decisions. Ireland? You are so lucky. The Irish were our heroes. Eamon de Valera, Michael Collins, Michael Davitt. I fancied myself as a revolutionary on a bicycle, just like Michael Collins. This is your golden opportunity to learn more about Irish revolutionaries and what they meant to us. What did this small island nation mean to a whole generation of people struggling for freedom in colonial India? The answer lies in a startling event, an Easter re-rising, when a group of armed rebels rose against the British once more during Easter this time in 1930, in a small town named Chittagong, in the very east of British India. This rebellion was modelled on and inspired by Dublin's Easter Rising of 1916. My grandfather was only 20 when India became independent in 1947, but even as a teenager, he had actively participated in freedom movements and had even been in prison for it. I had never empathised with my grandfather's extreme radical views but had never tried to understand them either. These are the famous men of the Rising. Patrick Case Pierce, Sean McDermott, James Conley, Amy Kant. With the 100-year commemorations of the Irish Easter Rising in the air, my grandfather is very much on my mind. He's 89 now, and I know, with his declined health, he will never visit me here, the land of his heroes. But I decided it was time to make a special trip home not just to visit my family and friends, but to honour my grandfather's wish to explore this deep Irish influence on revolutionary India. While chatting to my father, I was keen to know how my grandfather was doing. Do you think he has forgotten everything? Yes. Okay. Do you think he will remember me when he sees me? He does not even remember his sons. Okay. Then if he uh, sees them, you know. Yeah. So it's very difficult to... And if he was able to talk to me today, I would have interviewed him. So I w because he cannot talk, I'm trying to understand... Yeah, from what others... What, what, what he could have said for this project. I went to Kolkata, West Bengal, the eastern state of India, where revolutionary fervor first took hold. 
The British Crown officially took over the administration of India in 1858, but the British presence was already established on Indian soil more than a hundred years before that, in the form of a trading company called the East India Company. Bengal was one of the first places in which it set up operations. Bengal was the first to fall into the traps of the British Empire. I mean, the British Empire started from here, as you know, East India Company. Krishna Bose is a writer and educator from Bengal with close family links with many radical freedom fighters. Bengal first came into touch with the British and with the Western world, you can say. So in one way, as they were subjugated, humiliated, but at the same time, because they came in touch with the Western world, all this idea of revolution, you know, we called it a renaissance at that time. The idea of patriotism, unity, all that also started here first. So I think that's how Bengalis became the breeding ground for revolutionaries. Perhaps most people around the world think of Mahatma Gandhi and non-violence when they think of India's resistance to the British Empire. Gandhi came into prominence in the 1920s, but at the same time, there was a significant faction of people who did not think Gandhi's passive protests would yield any results and believed in more militant action. Gandhiji gave us a great weapon, how to fight such a power like the British Empire without any weapons in our hands. That was a great thing. But on the other hand, also just going into prison and coming out of prison all the time, people were getting tired of that. And they thought that this sort of passive resistance won't do. You must do something. So these revolutionaries, they made their homemade uh, revolvers and things and even bombs and uh, tried to fight the mighty British Empire. Dr. Partha Chatterjee is a scholar and historian from Columbia University and has another interesting insight into how and why Bengal became a stronghold of armed revolution in India. In Bengal there was something else, which was the constant ridicule that the Bengali was feeble, that the Bengali was effeminate, that the Bengali had no military tradition. And in a sense, this was almost a kind of attempt to cultivate a certain military capability, which historically had not been there. So it was almost trying to assert something which didn't exist in the past. You know, this explains, for instance, this massive spread of physical fitness clubs, the fact that football became so so important in Bengal among the uh, young men in particular, you know, this is, this is where the revolution is recruited, the cadres. Sports clubs, a recruiting ground in Bengal, not unlike Ireland's GAA clubs, where you'd find men who were fit and strong and willing to put up a fight against the British. It was around this time in 1929 when a young Bengali revolutionary called Jatin Das began a hunger strike in prison. He was demanding the classification of revolutionaries as political prisoners and died after 64 days. Thousands of Bengalis took to the streets and huge memorial rallies were held in his honour. Amongst many messages, a condolence telegraph arrived from the family of Terence McSweeney, the former Lord Mayor of Cork, who had died whilst on hunger strike in a British prison in similar circumstances. It read, 
The family of Terence McSweeney have heard with grief and pride of the death of Jathan Das. Freedom will come. This message from Ireland was received with a lot of enthusiasm by the Bengali radicals. The moment was ripe. The death of Jatin Das had provided the ignition needed to mobilise more radicals. But what really added fuel to this fire were the writings of yet another Irishman, Dan Breen. I was born on the 11th of August 1894 in my father's cottage at Grange, County Tipperary. I received the name Daniel. I was working at Inchicore when the great strike of 1913 occurred. I walked around the streets of Dublin after the day's work had finished and saw the police wielding their batons in frenzied charges, felling strikers and sightseers indiscriminately. Sickened to death by all this British duplicity, cant and humbug, and by all the sham talk about Home Rule Bill that gave only a vestige of self-government to my country, I made up my mind to join the Irish Republican Brotherhood. At Dublin's Easter Rising in 1916, Dan Breen was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Aged 22, he was working as a linesman in Limerick's railways and missed the historical action in the capital, Dublin. Day after day, one reads in papers of raids on the houses of inoffensive people who never handled firearms in their lives. It was this form of petty tyranny that goaded many into action. Boys and girls, not to speak of men and women, were imprisoned for such offences as having a copy of an Irish song. It was more than flesh and blood could stand. From 1919, he was involved in a series of armed actions in the cause of Irish freedom and provoked the government to announce a prize of £1,000 on his head. In 1921, when the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed, he didn't support the terms. He then went to America, where he wrote his memoirs in a book, My Fight for Irish Freedom. When he wrote this book, he couldn't possibly have imagined the profound effect it would have on a group of young men and women in an obscure corner of another British colony thousands of miles away, that they would be inspired to repeat the action of the Irish rebels in their homeland. The young revolutionaries of Chittagong, a small town in the eastern corner of British India, similar in size to Dublin. A new plan for more active operations against the British was, in short, to attack them in their strongholds, the police barracks throughout the country. Dan Breen's book, I think, was the first one which, for some reason, it circulated a lot, which actually had very vivid details of actual actions. Having taken these precautions to ensure that no assistance could arrive to the garrisons, we also cut the telegraph and telephone wires. Then we quickly occupied a few houses. In some, our men attempted to fire the building by means of petrol. You see, uh, and how those actions were organised and carried out, very detailed accounts of the training that they had organised, and much of this was so similar to the conditions that existed in Bengal, Right? That I think it became almost like a kind of, it was read like a textbook almost, a kind of manual of how to do it. Nobody really knows how the book made its way to India. But it did, and was translated into many Indian languages and distributed widely, despite the fact that it was banned by the British authorities in 1929. Hello. Hi. I went to meet Arpita Sen, a history lecturer based in West Bengal, who has studied the impact of Irish revolutionary literature on Indian nationalism. So excited meeting you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I, I've been closely associated with this Irish kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, because I was in Shillong, I was taught by an Irish nun. Yeah. Mother John Francis. Okay. We used to nickname her Johnny. Okay. 
Okay. And she had blue eyes. And when she went, you know, on holidays to Ireland, that time I was in class 10, you know, she got us these bookmarks with pictures of Ireland. Okay. And in Loreto, we used to always, you know, uh, pray for peace in Ireland. Really? In the, in the school assemblies. That was part of your prayer? Yes. Oh my God. Yes, because... That would be in the early 80s, you know, when this IRA was very active. Yeah, now yeah. it is very silent. I think there's some so kind of So you were problem. praying for peace in Ireland, Ireland when yes. you were in Shillong. Shillong. <laughs> Arpita told me that in the late 1920s for Bengali radicals, Ireland was a magical country. It had done the impossible. In spite of being a small, long enslaved colony, it had forced the British Empire to concede its independence. The revolutionaries in this far-flung corner of India were not well-versed with all the details of the Irish struggle, but had formed an image of Irish heroism from whatever fragments of Irish literature that they could get hold of. But I suppose many Bengalis belonging to the elite class or intelligentsia, you know, they were, you know, very interested in reading about, you know, what the Bengalis would call biplop, you know, revolution. <laughs> biplop. Biplop, yes, <laughs> revolution. These fragments provided an inspiring ideology. It wasn't just Dan Breen's book, but passionate writings of other Irish revolutionaries that had them enthralled. For example, these words of Patrick Pierce were used in the pamphlets for recruiting volunteers in Chittagong. This is Patrick Pierce's quote, uh, which was found in a police search which was made on 18 December. Okay, I'll read it properly for you. I cannot live. I cannot live. Even if I am alone, I shall have come to the field of activity with the banner of an armed revolution in order to bring vigour in the life of this inanimate nation. With my death, a hundred heroes will spring up who will triumph over death, who, with their fresh blood, prepare the steps to independence of young Ireland in the next era. The leaflet ended with the following words of Piers. No fear, there is no fear. No fear, there is no fear. He who will give his life completely will sustain no loss. It's very beautiful. So the leaflet reflected the anger of the youth of Bengal. The leader of this group of rebels in Bengal was Surya Sen. Like Patrick Pierce, he was a school teacher and was also called Master Da. He, along with a band of about 70 rebels in a small town called Chittagong, decided to launch an uprising and declare Chittagong free. Compared to Dublin, this attack was on a much smaller scale, but modelled exactly along the lines of the 1916 Easter Rising. This is This is Bastida Today, the story of this remarkable Indian Rising of 1930 is preserved in the form of photographs, sketches and memoirs that are lovingly looked after in a voluntarily run museum right in the heart of the busy city of Kolkata. So just as a school teacher, very lean and thin personality, but he was a fireball. Uh, he organized all the youths of Chattagram and nearby districts and made a revolutionary team of uh, revolutionaries. And you know, Surya Sen looks quite, his face looks quite mild person. Surya Sen was a school teacher and his profession made it easier for him to initiate the young people in patriotism and attract them towards the heroism. So this was the core group of the this uprising? This is the core group. One thing you can make out from all the faces, they look very young. Ranging from 14 to 30. Ranging from the age of 14 to 30, 
this group of revolutionaries knew that they didn't stand a chance against the might of the empire. But what was driving them was the idea of the blood sacrifice, the symbolism of the outrageous act of liberating even a tiny portion of India and the effect it might have on the rest of the people around the country, just like it did in Ireland. Hey, this is one of the first-ranking leaders, Ambika Chakraborty, then on the Jalalabad hilltop. He was the leader, general, hey, who organized the uh, battle against the British army. Remarkably, they also decided to stage their attack in Easter week of 1930, even though Easter itself didn't mean anything to the mostly non-Christian rebels. I can show you here also. Okay, so that's a list of all the places, places that they were attacked. Yeah. Polish headquarters. First was captured, then auxiliary force headquarters. The Chittagong group simultaneously attacked the police armory, auxiliary force armory and telephone exchange while railway communications were cut off and a train wrecked. The telephone office building was set on fire. At the auxiliary force armory, two sentries, the sergeant major and four others were killed. Both armories were raided and set on fire. The part of their plan that backfired completely was the plan to attack the European club and take British officers hostage. They didn't realize that the day being Good Friday, no Christian would be at the club for merriment. Another disastrous setback for them was that even though they managed to raid many arms at the armory, they couldn't get hold of any ammunition. But following the capture of the armory, the events that followed mirrored the famous Dublin Rebellion. But he, he, he's, he's hoisting the flag there, isn't no, he? Actually, after capturing the police headquarters, uh, Sir was declared the President of India by the revolutionaries. Uh, so they gave them gun salute and uh, he hoisted the Indian national flag. Uh, and uh, what was this group called? Indian Republican Army Chittagong Group, IRA, Indian Republican Army Chittagong Group. And do you know where that came from, the idea to name it? Yes, name? yes. This came, the idea came from Irish revolutionaries. He was very much influenced by the Irish revolutionary, particularly Sujashen was very much fond of Irish people. Surya Sen, the head of this Indian Republican Army, IRA, then made a proclamation quite similar to the one made by Pierce on behalf of the provisional government of the Irish Republic. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valor... In this supreme hour, Chittagong people must, by their valor and patriotism, and by the readiness of her children to sacrifice themselves for the common, common good, good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called. The groups then collected and marched off to the hills and jungles surrounding Chittagong, only to be confronted by the British soldiers in a fierce battle two days later. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that it was so explicitly modelled on 1916. Historian Kate O'Malley has done extensive research on Indo-Irish radical connections in this colonial period. It was quite shocking, in actual fact, almost in the way it panned out in lots of the minute failures as well. It mirrored 1916. And it was fascinating that Hindu nationalists would choose to have their rising coincide with a Christian festival, for starters, with Easter. 
And they knew that it wasn't going to be a success, even more so than I think the Irish rebels at the time. And they were willing to go ahead irrespective of that in this kind of small port town in Bangladesh. I think it's the second largest town in Bangladesh that something so similar to the Easter Rising happened uh, is just fascinating. And that on some of the bodies that were retrieved, quotes from Pierce were found in the pockets of some of the insurgents. I mean, that's just beggar's belief, really, when you think about it. But it happened, yeah. Any man who tells you that an act of armed resistance, even if made so soon as tomorrow, even if offered by ten men only... Another Irish man who inspired the Chittagong group was James Finton Lawler, an Irish revolutionary and a writer from the 19th century who had a big impact on the later leaders like Patrick Pierce. It was his coat that was carried like a talisman by the Indian rebels. That somewhere and somehow and by somebody a beginning must be made. And the first act of resistance is always and must be ever premature, imprudent and dangerous. This quote of James Finton Lawler was found in the pockets of one of the Chittagong rebels after he was shot dead by the British police. It was also found later in the handwriting of the leader of this group itself, Surya Sen. They're the martyrs. They look, they look at the pictures, they look, oh my God, they look, it's pretty shocking when you see the pictures, isn't it? Naturally. Uh, uh, They're just lying there, lying dead. There. Uh, uh, before they were burned by uh, petrol, the British government took the photographs. A lot more of the British were killed than the Indians. 80, 80, 80 strong British army were killed and only 12 lost their life from our, our side. In the gun battle with the British police, 80 British soldiers and 12 Chittagong rebels were killed. There were no civilian casualties reported. The rising itself lasted less than 24 hours, and so from the point of view of the men, it was a failure. But for the British, it was an unprecedented attack, the repercussions of which were never controlled. Do you think the IRA and Suryosen were successful in their... Yes, position? yes, absolutely. Because Samuel Hoare, the then Secretary of State for Indian Affairs, he told one, once that in 1930, the revolutionary movement of Chattogram gave impetus and further force to fight against the British and to achieve independence in 1947. So it is very important for us to remember Chattogram revolutionary movement because this revolutionary movement was the final nails in the coffin of British. The surviving members of the Indian IRA went into hiding. Some of these rebels were hunted down by the British, though Surya Sen, their leader, managed to stay on the run for the next three years. So ultimately the Chittagong revolutionaries, or Shujo Shen, who headed them, his you know, feeling was this, this feeling. It doesn't matter if we have failed, but like the Irish, after what we have done, you know, the others will follow suit. The Chittagong uprising had an electrifying effect. There was a clamour among young men and women in Bengal to join secret groups and emulate the Chittagong warriors. The next three years saw a wave of assassinations sweep through Bengal. It was around this time Services of an ex-Undersecretary of Dublin, John Anderson, were called upon to regain some control over the growing unrest in Bengal. 
the man who had once supervised the black and tans in Ireland, was now appointed the governor of Bengal. He always had Ireland on his mind and the kind of the, the failure of the reaction to 1916 on the part of the British administration. And so he was very keen not to have reprisals in Chittagong and that he felt that they, they should at least learn from their own mistakes. So we also have a kind of British reflections on failures in the aftermath of 1916 in Chittagong. So it's, it's quite interesting to see that it's not just the insurgents that are looking to Ireland, it's also the, the British administrators too. As a result of the lessons learned in Ireland, the British administration let the Chittagong insurgents get away comparatively lightly. This is perhaps the reason why the rising did not become as well known as it should have been. Twelve revolutionaries were given life sentences and 16 were let off for the lack of evidence. Only the leader of the rebels, Surya Sen, who was eventually arrested, was executed along with one of his comrades. Irish uh, struggle for independence was mainly characterized by violence. And what happened you know, even after they got independence was a civil war. So there was an apprehension among the Indian national leaders that this could also happen in India if, you know, the Indians emulated the Irish, that there might be a civil war. Because it was a very, very ugly kind of civil war, which is very well described in Dan Breen's book also. Okay, and he was imprisoned, just imagine, by the same people along with whom he fought, you know, against the British. And the thing was that it was perhaps because of this that for a long time, you know, the writings on Indian nationalism has been always, you know, focused on Gandhi's non-violent struggle. Because, you know, non-violent struggle and after, you know, partition, the kind of, you know, communal riots, you must be aware of that, you know, what happened in India. So Gandhi's non-violence, you know, became some kind of a model for India, that we must follow a non-violent path. So for a long time, revolutionary history of India and Bengal, you know, it was pushed behind. So it is only in subsequent years, you know, that this thing has again come to prominence. That, you know, violence also got us a freedom struggle. The story of the Irish legacy in India did not end with the Indian Easter Rising. It continued as more people opted to follow the Irish example of armed revolt and blood sacrifice. It was this subscription to the path of aggressive action and radical thought that I saw in my grandfather that always made me disagree with him and argue with him. <laughs> Family discussions often turned very controversial with my grandfather so vociferously denouncing the non-violent principles of Gandhi. Like him, his son or my uncle still argues that it suited the British all too well to have Gandhi for an enemy. They brought him into prominence because it made the country much easier to manage and subjugate, to undermine the revolutionaries and avoid negotiating with them. He says that no revolutionary is a revolutionary at birth. He tries every other way of compromise and when that becomes impossible, that's when he decides to revolt. A classic example of this is another Bengali revolutionary and a legendary Indian leader. Subhash Chandra Bose, or Netaji as he is popularly known in India. Bose was elected the mayor of Kolkata in 1930 and initially worked along with Gandhi in the Indian National Congress but later parted ways with him. While they had a common goal of securing complete freedom for India, they stood divided on the methods to achieve this goal. 
Bos firmly believed in the more militant path to independence. He thought that no country had ever achieved its independence without bloodshed. He openly recommended that India follow the Irish example. And so he fulfilled a long-held dream when he visited Ireland himself in 1936. Bose was considered part of, of the kind of more radical young Indian nationalists that were coming to the fore. And when Bose came to Ireland in 1936, he arrived in Cork. And one of the first things he did when he arrived in Ireland was visit the grave of Terence McSweeney. So quite an interesting full circle. But of course, it wasn't a straightforward state visit of an Indian politician. India was still very much a colony at this stage, even though Ireland was free. The British were not very comfortable with his visit. Well, he was actually persona non grata with the British at the time. He, it's kind of unusual because he could have arrived in Britain at any time because he was a British subject. They couldn't have refused him entry, but they told him that he was not allowed to come to Britain. And so as a result, he came to Ireland via France. And almost deliberately, de Valera courted him, knowing that it would have irritated the British authorities at the time. So he had been on the continent, travelling around as a kind of a roving ambassador for Indian independence, a kind of a role not unlike de Valera's in the United States in the 1919 period. So he came here, he had very specific intentions in mind. He wanted to learn from Irish nationalists, he wanted to find out how they were governing the country now that they had autonomy and he met with lots of the leading ministers of the day and met with de Valera. But not only that, he had been mayor of Calcutta so he met with the Lord Mayor. He set in the Dáil and saw proceedings in the Dáil and generally like a mini-state visit and it was being monitored the whole time by um, British intelligence so his every move was reported back to the India office who were very concerned about it. Bo's visit to Ireland as part of his European tour had a formative influence on his actions that followed. On his return to India, he organised a new political party. In 1939, he advocated a mass civil disobedience campaign to protest against India being dragged into the Second World War. When he was imprisoned for this, he went on a hunger strike that severely affected his health. The authorities released him but kept his house under surveillance. He really wanted to do something pragmatic. And so using the age-old you know, term of my enemy's difficulty being an opportunity, he, in kind of a less specific way, used the Irish Rising as an example. He said we were going to carry out insurgencies during a time of difficulty for Britain. With Britain in a compromised position, Bose decided it was time to act. He was supposedly recuperating in his house when he planned his escape. I went to Subhash Chandra Bose or Netaji's family home and met his grandnephew Sumantra Bose, who showed me around the famous house in Kolkata that is now a museum and is visited by hundreds of tourists every day. But this is the original you know, wooden staircase from 1909. Bose lived in a big house with an extended family. There were numerous residents and domestic staff, some of whom were also informants. All of this was going to make his secret escape very challenging. It was a kind of a lazy, you know, winter, you know, Sunday afternoon in December 1940, and uh, Netaji was lying you know, on this bed, you know, propped up by a couple of pillows. Uh, Netaji said to my father in, in Bengali, Amar akta kaj korte parbe, you know, can you do something for me? Netaji was actually asking his 20-year-old, you know, nephew, 
to help him you know, plan and execute what became Netaji's great escape from India six weeks later. You know, that began the climactic period of Netaji's life, which would culminate between 1943 and 1945 as the head of the provisional government of Free India and as the supreme commander of the Indian National Army. Bose's nephew helped him escape from the house in Kolkata and from Bengal. Bose then made his way through Pakistan, Afghanistan and Italy towards Germany to seek German military help in the cause of India, just like the Irish nationalist Roger Casement had done during the First World War. And even while leaving his house for this big expedition, Ireland was very much on his mind. Uh, during the drive that, that Netaji asked uh, my father, Shishir Bose, about uh, whether he knew about Devereux's famous escape from Lincoln Prison in England. So that was part of their conversation during the overnight drive from Calcutta to uh, this railhead uh, 200 miles from here. Bose was referring to the famous escape of Eamon de Valera from Lincoln Prison in 1919, when de Valera had managed to make an impression of the prison key in candle wax. This was used by the Irish rebels to make a duplicate key which they smuggled back to him, hidden in a cake. He felt inspired, but he also felt a bit intimidated because uh, de Valera's jailbreak was, was organised by seasoned revolutionaries led by Michael Collins himself. Uh, and uh, my father thought that, you know, he's just a 20-year-old you know, medical student with no prior revolutionary uh, experience, uh, but his uncle seems to be relying primarily on him to carry this off. When German support became untenable because of changing war conditions, Bose went to Japan and with Japanese help set up an Indian National Army, or INA, made up of 40,000 troops. He decided to try and recruit an Indian National Army from prisoners of war in the Far East. With the Japanese government's help, he did this. And uh, they managed to recruit up to 40,000 people for this Indian National Army, which uh, was modelled on the Irish Republican Army. On the 21st of October 1943, Bose followed de Valera's example by setting up and declaring a provisional government of free India. But whether we survive or not, whether we individually live to see India free or not, we are confident that India shall be free. In 1944, Bose was speaking to the troops in his Indian National Army. We are confident that the menace that now hangs over East Asia will be removed once for all. And then broadcasts were carried out as well, and he did broadcast during this time from the Far East to Ireland, talking about the influence that the Rising had had on his thinking at this time. So we have you know, very explicit evidence that Bose was motivated by the Rising and that he, it was something that was very close to his heart. His newly styled INA breached the northeastern border of India through Burma. But it wasn't long before they were defeated and forced to retreat. Bose died soon after this in an air crash in 1945 when a Japanese aircraft crashed in Taiwan. The whole nation was in mourning and the British made as grave a mistake as in the 1916 executions by putting the leaders of the INA on a public trial in 1945. The nationalist sentiment reached a crescendo. The whole country stood behind the patriots of the INA, so much so that the British now feared of large-scale defection from the troops in their own British Indian Army. The sentences to the INA leaders were commuted. 
urgent withdrawal from the Indian subcontinent was imminent. Shubhashchandra Bose's objective was to subvert the loyalty of the Indian you know, soldiers and officers to the British Empire and replace it with loyalty to, to India. And there he succeeded you know, remarkably. And as a result, you know, after the Red Fort trials of the, the three INA officers, almost the entire country rose in solidarity with the, with the soldiers of the INA. And you know, that certainly played a you know, very major role in the British decision to leave India in rather a hurry. You know, there was, you know, they had been around for so long, you know, the, the departure was really very hurried. Uh, it was uh, originally supposed to be a, by the middle of 1948, and then Mountbatten advanced it to August 1947, so they left in rather a hurry. The question is, why did they leave in such a hurry? And there must have been a reason for this, because even after leaving India, the jewel and the crown of empire, the British uh, fought hard you know, and ruthlessly to retain their remaining colonies, you know, whether it's Malaya or Kenya or even Cyprus. So why did they leave India in such a hurry in 1947? And I think uh, the answer to that is that you know, they realized that they could no longer depend on the loyalty of the Indian soldiers of the British Empire. That had been subverted by, by the INA. Perhaps as a sign of vengeance, Lord Mountbatten, who was the last Viceroy of India, ordered the memorial to the fallen INA soldiers to be destroyed. Legend has it, that an INA soldier cursed him, that he would one day be blown up in a similar way. Ironically, he was indeed killed when the IRA blew up his boat off the coast of Sligo in 1979. The debate on the role played by militant nationalists like Bose, as opposed to the non-violent path followed by Gandhi in the independence of India, is a debate that continues to divide the country. Not unlike the Irish, we ask ourselves, what was the place of violence in reclaiming what was rightfully ours, our independence? Well, I think they, have a very, they had a very important role to play. They had a much greater in, in, influence on the imaginations of people, uh, so that very large sections of the people became aware of something called the nation and began to participate in some kind of imagining of the nation than would have been possible otherwise. Militarily, they didn't necessarily achieve very much, but precisely in terms of, you could say, igniting the imagination, they had enormous effects. And I think that is something which it's hard to think how those kinds of sudden expansions could have been achieved through simply by adding one little constituency or for another little constituency. I don't think that's how large nationalist uh, mobilizations actually take place. I could nearly hear my grandfather approving of this opinion. He would have liked nothing more than to contribute to this debate. But unfortunately, I'm too late for this. Dementia has taken away a lot of his memory. Nanda. <laughs> Pranjali. Pranjali. It was a shock to see my grandfather in this state. He had always been so sharp-witted and argumentative, and now he had even forgotten my name. Me Ireland last Ireland Ireland. But I did notice him spark up at the sound of Ireland. 
He knew the word meant something, but he couldn't quite say what. I was brought back to the unforgettable smile he had given me when he had heard the name Ireland. I don't think he ever believed I would one day delve into a part of history that gave so much meaning to his life. I wish I wasn't so late in telling him, look what I found out, isn't this amazing? What do you think? I think he would have been enormously pleased and not only pleased, he would have gone out of the way in uh, helping you with further research in, on this subject. And he would have been pleased that at least um, somebody from the next generation of his family is carrying forward his interest in the revolutionary movements in the world. Not long after Indian independence, at a reception in Birmingham celebrating the declaration of India as a republic, Eamon de Valera was asked to be the guest of honour. The organisers were asked why they had not chosen a fellow Indian. Their response was really moving. We and the Irish had strong ties of friendship. We suffered under the same tyranny for many centuries. They had the Black and Tans. We had the massacre of Amritsar. They had de Valera and Casement and McSweeney. We had Gandhi and Nehru and Bose. They had Sinn Féin. We had our National Congress. They had the IRA. We had the INA. It is not only for the smile and the shamrock we know Ireland. It is for the toughness of their leaders and for the rebellion in their hearts. <laughs> <laughs>